Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I've been up since 4am again. The dream has died and England are out of the World Cup. But that's okay because the Mumbrella team is here to talk about media and marketing instead. Joining me is the equally sleep-deprived, through jet lag, Abigail Dawson, who watches our advertising and comms beat. Hi, Tim. And our senior media reporter, Zoe Samuels, who's also just back in the country, but has had some sort of jet lag-avoiding miracle. Hi, Tim. Plus, our (laughs) guest this week is one of the PR world's biggest players, the CEO for PR and Public Affairs for WPPAUNZ, Kieran Moore. Hello, Tim. So, to the week's topics... We examine the crisis comms behind the Thai cave rescue. Is it time for Australia to decide if it still wants a national broadcaster? The first ratings verdicts are in for Gold FM and Macquarie Media's big experiments. PR bigwig James Wright's move overseas. So first, uh, we welcome along Kieran, who'll be joining us for the uh, for the length of the Mumbrella cast today. Now, Kieran, um, you, you've been in rebrand mode, so out goes Ogilvy. Incomes OPR. Uh, what's that all about? When uh, Ogilvy Public Relations was established uh, 15 years ago, it was very different from the rest of the world in the fact that WPP and STW came together, but they actually bought brands that already existed in the marketplace. So they uh, bought Howarth, which is business to business and technology, Pulse that does branding, Parker and Partners that does government relations, etc. So we'd always been very different um, in terms of the structure and the reporting from the rest of Ogilvy uh, globally. Um, so there was a um, there was a there was a move to uh, consolidate a lot of the Ogilvy PR brands into the the master brand of Ogilvy, uh, and we just thought that it would probably be a good time to change OPR. Um, because we had um, a whole bunch of clients that were in conflict with Ogilvy, um, and we probably just wanted to get on and run our own race. And I guess one thing as well is sort of the all of that heritage in David Ogilvy is from the advertising world rather than from the PR and communications world, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Having said that, the the public relations practices within Ogilvy globally are very, very strong, particularly in Asia. Um, and in fact, I think they're the biggest public relations group in that region. Um, so it was just more of a fact that we're a bit of an anomaly in Australia. And so the new OPR branding means that now you're, you've dropped out of the Ogilvy Worldwide Network. That's correct, isn't it? No, it's kind of, we're kind of half pregnant. Okay. (laughs) So what that means is we'll be running, um, as we've always done, which is independently, but we report into WPPAUNZ. So OPR reports into me. But it also means that we'll be working with the Ogilvy Australia team in terms of their PR briefs, but they'll also be able to respond to their own PR briefs. So we're we're kind of sitting on the fence in terms of we just want to give clients what they need. I guess one of the things for you as well is one of the things of just sticking around in this industry is you eventually almost become a spokesperson for the industry. Um, you saying I'm old, Tim. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm saying that you're a fellow of the PR Institute of Australia, so uh, I think you're well qualified to speak for the industry. Um, how do you think we're going at the moment? Where, where, where are we at for PR? Are we at a high point, a low point, somewhere between the two? I think we're at a high point. Um, if I look at the 19 companies that are part of my group, um, if you look at just the pure financials of them, uh, they're all overachieving what they're supposed to 
to do, which is always a good sign. It's a big tick for our shareholders. But I think more importantly, the work that we're getting um, in terms of uh, whether it's uh, change management for companies that are under, you know, undergoing any sort of transformation or there's a lot of employee engagement, um, scopes of work. Uh, we're doing a lot of uh, work with the pharmaceutical companies in terms of getting drugs listed on the PBS. I mean, I think the, the breadth of what we do now um, in terms of or versus what it was 15 years ago, which is primarily media relations, means that that breadth has enabled us to grow stronger and to become more capable and to be really more competitive. And, you know, if I think about probably 50% of the time when we are going to big competitive pitches, be they uh, for corporates or for government, we're competing against the creative agencies. So, um, and we're doing really well in that in that field. And that's probably got a lot to do with the fact that um, there is that breadth, um, but also the cost effectiveness of um, the way that we propose programs uh, and the fact that we really understand the audiences that we're trying to get to. So and I think that that pedigree has meant that we're uh, increasingly more attractive to people who want to buy our services. So within you mentioned breadth and creative services mm-hmm. there. Something that I've noticed from speaking to various people through the industry is also the media buying aspect that, that PR's sort of getting into whether it only even if it's only just on social, is that something that you've noticed as well um, that's expanding within PR's remit? It is. Uh, it is, and it's on a sort of client-by-client, case-by-case basis. I think that where there's a small amount of media buy, the PR companies are very, you know, happy and well-equipped to do that. Anything that's bigger, you know, we really can't be competing with the Group M's or the icons of the world because that sort of programmatic buying and all of the scale we'll never be able to have. But having an understanding of how uh, paid can help with the earned first approach is obviously an advantage. And I suppose sort of aligned to that is what what happens client side, which I I suppose my point of view is I I think I see a trend towards um, communications and marketing actually sitting Sometimes even with the same within the same person, but um, you know more often at least the, de- the departments are together now. Not always the case though. Where do you see the world going on that? In an ideal world, <laughs> marketing communications would sit together, um, and I think some of the the companies that we that we work with, for example, Microsoft, uh, the uh, head of communications is now the CMO. So. Her name's Pip Arthur and she comes from a comms background but she now looks after comms and marketing and that alignment uh, in terms of making sure that we're not bombarding the same audience with 100 different messages via a million different channels, that consistency uh, and uh, pure bloody-minded focus I think is, has been uh, d- demonstrated to be working really well with Microsoft. I think that the more that those two uh, disciplines can come together, I think, I think the better so you mentioned sort of the, the breadth, the, the um, extended breadth of work that PR is getting with different clients, but budgets has also, or maybe traditionally was a bit of a struggle for PR, mm-hmm. sort of being given the leftover of the marketing mix budget. Are you seeing that changing now? Are you seeing clients expanding their budgets and, and actually leaving, scheduling PR in to their plan rather than just it being sort of the leftover? Yep. At the end? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that most of the agencies in my group are growing is because they've got access to the marketing budgets now. And that's also, uh, I believe, because our enlightened clients uh, see the value of it, but they are really tapping into uh, resources and funds and budgets that we weren't even close to probably five years ago. 
Now you, uh, I alluded to the fact that you're a fellow of the PRIA. I was just, just, just thinking, obviously knowing that, that, that you were coming in. I, I remember, gosh, four or five years ago, there was a, uh, it felt like we were covering every other week some sort of story about, you know, PR Council was launching as part of the, 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 the wider communications council. Was this a challenge to Priya? Would they sit a, a, alongside each other? Um, what do you see as the, the role today of industry bodies like Priya? I think that, in once again, in an ideal world, I think that uh, Priya... Um, is incredibly valuable to a lot of the smaller uh, independent PR agencies uh, who can use PRIA to access training and development and learning programs that they probably can't afford as, you know, as um, sole traders or, you know, smaller independents. So I think the training and development aspect of it is, is one part of it. What the PRIA has been particularly good at in the last few months is uh, A, uh, lobbying on behalf of the industry for the visa status because we're really struggling to get really highly qualified PR practitioners in this market. So, so this that, was the changes to the 457 yes, four-year visa yeah, yeah. So and, that, and arguing that the, the list of jobs should be widened to include public relations right. ones. Yeah, and that was that was a really big win for us. Um, the second um, aspect of what they're doing right now is talking to to government and procurement uh, to try and um, help all the PR agencies that are on the panels better navigate their way through procurement because what we find sometimes is that um, the government briefs come in that they can be very the turnaround time is very short there's no feedback in terms of why you're unsuccessful um you know things chop and change quite quickly so lobbying on behalf of all of us um about a better way of of dealing with choosing the right pr partner is something that they're doing and doing very well so you've got the PRIA and the pr council what do you see as sort of the key differences between the two and do you believe that there is room for two I've um, we've we've never been we've never been part of the PR council. Um, I thought that um, at the time I thought that we were splitting hairs in terms of what we did, and that we'd be stronger kind of, or stronger together. So we've put our um, money and our membership behind the PRAA. Another uh, story from this week before we get into fully into um, the topics of the week. In fact, I think maybe this was a week or two. Um, there was a there was quite a memorable piece in the in the telly, and it yeah. it was talking about sort of some individual characters, and it was I I, I guess they're sort of their 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 poster person for it was Roxy Jasenko. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that means that's the public perception of what what people who work in the PR industry do. <laughs> Clearly, it sort of nudges towards the publicity end of things, but I guess it's both good to stand for something, isn't it? i i think that that story in the telegraph and the three women that were profiled could not be further away from what uh, pr practitioners are doing in australia um if i think about um the type of work that they do i mean they are they are hardcore publicists um and you know and right at the other end of the spectrum you have people in you know the 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 bigger what should i uh, the sort of dip the uh, the true PR consultancies that either come from a government relations background or public affairs background. We've got ex-chiefs of staff, uh, you know, ministers and people that have worked for the Prime Minister and we've got people that are really uh, skilled in the area of sort of medical uh, medical technology and pharma and all those types of things. And 
I think that there's, there's a very big spectrum of uh, of the work that we do. I think it's a shame that um, the industry gets, uh, uh, what's the word, stereotyped into thinking that it's all blonde and bubbles and Instagram and froth and fabulous the, lunches. The, the ab fab effect. It is the ab fab, but the thing about the ab fab is that that was 30 years ago. So um, I think that... Um, you know, they are, they are dyed-in-the-wool publicists. So I think the other thing is that PR professionals like me like to stay behind the camera and don't like to be part of the story. So I think that, um, you know, we've got always talk about the, you know, PR has a PR problem because people don't really understand what we do. And that may be the case. But I think if it's um, – and, you know, my dad didn't know what I did for 30 years. <laughs> God bless him. So um, even when I tried to explain it to him. So, um, yeah, no, to me they are – uh, nothing to do with uh, professional public relations. It's publicity for fashion brands normally, and they tend to be part and front and centre of the story. It's kind of not my cup of tea, really. I mean, do you think part of the reason that there is that perception as well is because PR is really going through a bit of an identity crisis? I mean, even as we've already discussed, the scope of PR has changed uh, rapidly and also so much in 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 the past you know decade or even last five years yep. do you think that's another reason why you know I suppose it depends on whether we want people men, men in the street to to actually understand what PR is probably not generally you know if my dad couldn't work it out and he was a smart guy my mum never worked out because it's actually not that important to them I think the people that we're talking to you know the people in the marketing industry or our clients or our colleagues they understand what we do so we probably don't need a wholesale brand refresh but um you know I've we've been talking about I've been I've been in the industry for 30 something years and we've been talking about it all that time but do you think that then you know for someone that's just finished high school mm-hmm. and they want to go into PR and, and they read an article such as the PR princesses in the Daily Telly, that, that gives them a bit of a false perception of what PR actually is. I mean, a whole, you know, another topic is this huge talent issue in PR. Yeah. Do you think that impacts it then? Um, look, I'd like to think that I mean, my nephew's doing communications at UTS and I think that if we were wanting to influence the people that were going to be part of the workforce in the next few years, I think they're being influenced through their universities and through a lot of the internship programs and things that they do. I mean, the fact that the story was in the telly kind of, you know, sums it up, really. <laughs> and uh, question without notice, um, but I, I, the thought suddenly occurred, I really should have, having the opportunity to have someone from WPP in the room should ask this question, how does life feel since Sir Martin Sorrell left the business? Has it changed? Does it feel like a different company? WPPAUNZ is very different from the rest of WPP anyway. Um, we're different because we are listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. I think there's only one or two other um, uh, places in the world, somewhere in Africa, I think, uh, that's listed on their local stock exchange. So that makes us very different. And all the local management and decision-making is all done here. So that's very different from the rest of us. So do you the think rest- the culture was more set by Mike Conahan than Martin yeah. Sorrell? Yes, I do. Uh, and, in fact, we didn't have very much to do uh, with Sir Martin anyway. Um, he would come down a couple of times, uh, well, a couple of times certainly in my history, and I've been with the with um, WPP STW for 15 years. So, um, no, not a lot of change because of the local autonomy we've got with our decision-making and the initiatives that we do, which actually is very liberating, I have to say.
So on to our first topic of the week. Now, if there's one story that's been cutting through the media noise this week, it's been the tale of 12 boys and their soccer coach trapped in a cave in Thailand. Now, um, Abby, first to you. So we published a piece on the crisis communication aspects of this from a, a media coach, Jane Jordan, this week. What were the key lessons that she flagged? Lucky I am curious and interested in media, Tim. I was actually on a very, very long flight when all this uh, story went down, but good old Emirates have the news section, so I was reading it. Um, But as Jane Jordan, the author of um, the piece that that we published, as you just mentioned, uh, said it's about understanding how media report a crisis. Stage one is the breaking news stage, so the crisis itself what's happened. Um, This is the section, I suppose, where, you know, news travels really fast and it's probably quite imperative to be on top of having your spokesperson and and, and your message as well. Kieran probably knows a lot more about that than me, but (laughs) um, stage two tends to be focusing on the response um, and the victims. So it sort of moves away from what's happened to the drama of what's going on. Um, She called it the make it or break stage. Uh, Stage three, the blame stage, which you would hope can be avoided, but um, is about the finger pointing and a lot of the questions around why did this happen? And then stage four being the resolution stage, so the end of a crisis. So um, in this case of the the cave in Thailand, maybe, you know, when the boys return to school. And Kieran, I presume often when you're going through this process with a client, you're coming in quite cold to the situation mm-hmm. as well. I, I, I presume in an ideal world they're already retained client, but I'm guessing that's not always the case. Where do you start on the moment that you pick up the phone on something like that? Most of the time when we're brought in, it's it's for, for crisis, it's probably 90% of the time they're not our existing clients. So, Which um, means higher billable hours? It means you're dealing with the most senior people in the organisation. <laughs> Uh, which is great because um, if there's a if there's a crisis or an issue brewing, and the fact that you're working with the CEO or the you know the executive team is fantastic because you know that they're taking it seriously. In terms of the first thing you uh, you work out, you need to find out the truth, um, and you know you need to be told everything uh, without any skeletons in the closet, uh, and you need to be sure that you're getting told being being told the truth. Because if you're not being told the truth, you can't possibly give the right advice. And, in fact, we've walked away from a, um, a couple of engagements where, you know, you don't think you feel that you're not being um, told the truth and given all the facts and that you think that maybe the organisation wants to put, um, uh, you know, they want to PR it, in inverted commas, or spin it, uh, in which case, you know, our integrity is too important to us so we tend to tend to walk away. Um, you know, the old adage, you can't put, you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. So, um, but when we do get engaged, it's normally, you know, having someone to talk to, making sure there's the right people in the room, the legal people, the customers, the customer reps, finance team, you know, depending on the particular issue. Now, Zoe, um, you're, I I, I guess, bring the media perspective to this. Um, A a lot was made by the Australian media that uh, one of the lead divers was an Australian. How how did it strike these attempts to kind of turn it into a local story? I found it really interesting. The story actually broke for me, similar to Abby, while I was overseas. And I remember on Saturday I was actually... I don't know how we've been managing without them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've been far away and sorely missed. That's what we'll tell each, um, each other as we come back to work. Um, the Yeah, I was overseas. I was actually sitting in front of BBC's coverage 
I had turned off my Twitter in an attempt to switch off over the holidays and had come back from Greece and Italy with little to no phone reception to sort of this breaking. The, the difference that I found was, in fact, that there was this sense of empathy in Australia. It felt like the coverage, particularly in the UK, was a lot more straight down the line, here are the facts, explain as the challenges with getting the boys out. When I came back to Australia, all of a sudden – the focus wasn't necessarily just the boys. It was about this doctor. And it went as far as uh, the doctor, Richard Harris, I think his name was, his father actually passed away shortly afterwards. And all of a sudden the conversation became, yes, it was great that the boys were out, but here are these great Australian doctors helping. And I thought it definitely helped the Australian public perhaps empathise with the situation, a situation where you might be asking questions such as, well, why were they in the cave when there were there were signs about, you know, flash flooding, why did the coach do that if the, if the children couldn't swim? There's a lot of questions, but you kind of had this, ah, oh, okay, there's this great Australian diver pair that are really helping out in Thailand and this is such a wonderful thing and how sad it is, is it that after all his work, his dad died as well. It was really, really interesting to see the, the differences in the reporting between two countries. Kieran, how did you feel the media covered it? I thought... I mean, I, I'm just thinking what Zoe said. I think that it probably would have been, well, it would have been completely different in the UK given what had happened with Brexit and Boris Johnson and the football and, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that the media covered it with a lot of empathy and uh, emotion pretty much from the beginning. And I kind of, I think it was a universally, I mean, it captivated the world, the whole story. I mean, you know, there's talk now that Hollywood producers and scouters already in there in terms of working out how they can, you know, make a, a great or tell that story in, you know, probably a million different ways. But I thought there was a lot of empathy and almost a feeling of, you know, because of their age, because of their vulnerability, you know, it could have been anybody's children. So then it became, you know, the world looking at how it was going to well, watch with, you know, with bated breath and, and hope to God that they got out of there. I read a very good colour piece, I think it was in Crikey actually, to your point, um, and it was sort of covering the, the media coverage, and was talking about exactly the fact that, the, that fact that people were, script writers were piling in, uh, potential authors were arriving, so it wasn't even just journalists covering it for that day, it was people who could see mm. a book somewhere down the yeah. line. I think the other thing that was interesting is they did follow quite a lot of best practice in terms of crisis management. Mm. Um, they were all, um, you know, cordoned off. There were only certain areas where journalists were allowed to go. I, I do understand that the Thai media were treated very differently from the international media. Um, I haven't really got into that yet, but I think that's more of a um, – Anyway, I'll come back to that. Uh, I think the other is, you know, they only they chose the governor to to to, to you know to give all the news. They were regularly updating the news, um, and then you then afterwards, you know, it, you know, to your point, Abby, about sort of stage three when they're getting people out, then you could start celebrating the you know the divers and the the doctors and the engineers that were that were there. I mean, it's an amazing story, but it was interesting. You could see ABC going in saying we're one of only one. Of handful of international organisations been allowed, at, you know, at the foot of the mouth of the cave, and Channel Seven were only one of a few broadcasters allowed. So I can only imagine the pressure on all of those journalists to get something different, which is why, you know, the minute we got into stage two, which is about the people, you had, you know, cave diving experts from the UK, you had psychologists, you had, you know, uh, the mother of one of the um, Navy SEALs, who was in a in her home in Wales. 
you know, talking about how proud she was of her son. So literally the tentacles of trying to get something different and, and a new spin on it, I think, took on a whole new level, really. Well, next, speaking of the ABC, the ABC fights for its future. So it's another week with the ABC in the boxing ring, possibly as a punch bag, possibly as a participant. Zoe, let me bring you in on this one. So... Fairfax Media, they um, have, have just made public their submission to the ACCC inquiry into the competitive neutrality of government-funded broadcasters, so the ABC, SBS. Um, and Fairfax are arguing that um, the ABC is actually a threat to the survival of commercial news journalism. Why? Well, this was a great story to come back to. My first back in Australia <laughs> on Monday afternoon after a 7am arrival. But the main reasons that Fairfax is arguing that it is a threat, and I think they went as far to say uh, distorting the market, um, was to do with it affecting commercial news subscriptions and limiting advertising revenue. So when you look through the Fairfax media submission, they are talking about how much, and I think it was more than $500 million in advertising revenue they've lost since 1999 compared to 2017. They're talking about how they're really trying to get people to pay for news journalism, which has been such a big thing for all the publishers. And they're arguing that the ABC in, and their investment in digital has posed a threat because the ABC doesn't have to have a paywall because they're, they're government funded. You can see both sides of the table. Uh, ABC chairman Justin Milne hit back uh, a day later. He he had a speech. His argument was that without digital, ABC can't survive, despite the fact that the charter was broadcast originally. Fairfax's argument was also that, you know, they needed to adhere more to the national identity and, and address areas in markets where other publishers perhaps lack. So you can see you can see why Fairfax is tense. You can see why any publisher would be tense when there's someone that I can get coverage from. And I've done that as a consumer before. Hey, oh, here's an ABC article, no paywall. In my previous years, I've been very ready to go do that. So you can see that side of the table. But you can also see that without ABC investing in digital, what's that going to look like? Because we talk about decline in TV, radio, all these mediums. You You don't let ABC invest in digital. What does that mean for the ABC? And, of course, we are also already seeing the effects of the forthcoming spending cuts. Uh, one of the stories that broke um, uh, late last week was uh, the checkout mm. uh, being uh, being being dropped. It would seem, for budgetary reasons, of course, you know, a, a, a really great piece of public service broadcasting because it's about, you know, protecting consumers. Um, Karen, do you do you think there's an essential place for the ABC in, in public life? Absolutely, uh, without doubt. I mean, it's my number one go-to source. Uh, uh, that and SBS. Uh, so no, it, I think it's I think it's vital. I I under, well, I understand Fairfax's commercial, uh, you know, concerns. I think that. Um, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say that, well, actually the ABC can keep working and being publicly funded as long as it doesn't attract eyeballs, doesn't have any readership and only covers really small um, interest groups that the rest of the country doesn't care about. Um, you know, it's not as if uh, the uh, commercial publishers didn't know about the ABC and SBS when they started on their 
you know, their digital journeys. So I think that anything that encourages better journalism, um, more insightful, objective opinion and, and news and stories is good for the country. And um, I, I, I guess within within your organisation, you you have public affairs specialists. If the if the ABC was a client and they were looking to lobby for protecting the funding, arguing for their centrality to public life, how do they actually go about doing that effectively? It's almost impossible for them to do it effectively because the people they're lobbying are the people that are paying, <laughs> paying them and are, are essential for their, their, for their survival. Um, I think that the, the closure or, you know, the shutting down or, you know, of certain programs has, you know, you mentioned the checkout. I mean, that, that public, the public outrage around that was, was quite uh, sensational and probably, um, a lot more, um, vocal and, uh, overwhelming than probably the ABC even thought. I think when people start seeing their favourite programs st- being cut or, you know, being um, taken away, um, I think that that's when, you know, hopefully, you know, Australians will rise up and, and support the ABC. Of, and one thing about that outrage is is I felt that outrage and then I thought about it and felt a little bit hypocritical because I hadn't watched it in a year or more and I very much approve of the fact that it exists but you know the ratings are dropped it was below 500,000 so I was not alone in that um you you can also sort of understand why if people just won't watch this stuff they might have to make that tough decision as well yeah no I know for sure I just um I mean I think the unfortunate thing is that probably programs that are rating higher than that will also be uh faced with closure um so yeah it's hard to know what to do because they're they're between a rock and a hard place, they can't be too outspoken. In other words, they'll get under the skin of the of the government, um, and then they get, um, you know, they get uh, pilloried for not uh, being more vocal. Well, next, a big job move in the world of PR. One of the Australian PR industry's best known executives, James Wright, has left Red for a role as global chairman of Havas PR Collective, which is part of the same family, and the CEO of Havas PR for North America. Now. Abby, I remember when James first arrived in Australia in 2011. Now, at the time, Red was in the doldrums. They were they were in the same space as what was then the creative agency Euro RSCG, which is now Havas. Um, and he, since James has been there, the agency has been doing really well. What was it that he brought to it, do you think? I think for me, I certainly view Red as quite a creative PR agency. Um, I also think they're they're quite uh, savvy with tech. I mean, take two of their last campaigns. You look at the uh, riderless bike uh, for the Steve Waugh Foundation and you look at the Palau Pledge that they did with Host of Us, their creative agency. Um, you can tell that they are an extremely creative PR agency and I think that's probably something that James really brought to Red right back to the days when he worked with um, Steve Cole, when Steve Cole was at um, Havas, which I think was uh, 2010 to 2000. Yeah, and Steve was the executive creative director at the time, yep. now, now over at the With Collective. Yeah, and uh, I think that that is also reflective in in James's role across the Havas village, being the, um, I'm pr- pretty sure it's the chief, chief operating officer against uh, Red Havas um, and Havas Media. So 
for me, that that's probably where I see a great deal of success, um, especially, you know, even coming right back to the conversation that we had uh, earlier about the scope of PR now being quite inherently creative. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Kieran, because to me that has been one of the interesting things is, uh, and I'm never sure whether to see it as an opportunity or a threat, which probably means it's both for PR agencies, is good advertising agencies, good creative agencies are now baking in a PR element, or they might still call it free media, um, into the central idea rather than being a sort of mm. amplification afterthought. Do you do you see there's an opportunity for PR to play in the creative space, creative agencies to play in the PR space? I think it's both. I think that if you look at agencies like OPR, which is the biggest PR company in Australia, we have an executive creative director, Bridget Young, which, which um, has she's been with us Probably, gosh, oh, oh, maybe I, I was should know. I was going to say, maybe it's it always you. longer than you think. I know. <laughs> I, when, I was maybe go about eight, eight months. months. Okay, good. Whenever I say to someone, "So, how are you settling in?" There was, like, I've been there for a year and a half now. <laughs> I was going to say eight and, months. Yeah. And we, uh, she joined us from Marcel. And what's interesting about that is that we've cre- we've we saw the need to have an ECD within uh, the PR agency, and she now runs all the creative and all of the content. Uh, for OPR, but at the same time, when we're working with other agency partners, be they WPP or when we work with Leos or you know whomever we work with, um, you know there's there's always a way of of making sure that there's an earned component um, to it as well. But as I said before, what's happening increasingly is they're coming to us, the PR companies, and we are creating the idea, and then we're adding. Um, media buying or above the line or elements of digital to it afterwards. So a lot of the work we do for KFC, a lot of the work we do for American Express, uh, the work that we do with uh, Coca-Cola um, is pretty much, uh, well, it's not pretty much, it's created within OPR and then we bring everybody else in. But then conversely, you know, we're, they're often the idea comes from the creative agency and, and we build on that. But the best results are when you get an integrated team together. Um, so a lot of the clients that we work with across WPP will have the media buying, the creative, the digital, the social and the PR in the room together from the very beginning and then we ideate and we put the program together and then we build a scope and then we're all in charge of getting the, the results and all in charge of um, making sure that the client's happy gone are the days where everyone puts their elbows up and they're trying to compete everybody out of the way but are they really well for the i think for the most part they are i mean it it's obviously helps if you are all part of the same holding group uh, because there's a bit of an unwritten rule in terms of collaboration uh, and that and that's sort of the the values of partnering and collaborating and put the client putting the client first is becoming more and more a um, modus operandi for the companies that are part of it um and to be honest, it's kind of the way the world's going. So you better get on the bus or, you know, there won't be another bus for you to get on. <laughs> Abby, just before we get off this topic, uh, any guesses on James Wright's successor? Is there, is, there, is there an obvious internal successor, do you think? Look, this purely speculation um, and, and just a personal guess because I, I actually don't know. But my guess probably would be that they would split his role. I mean, he's the chief commercial officer, chief operating officer of, of the Havas Group, but also the CEO of Red Agency. So I would assume that they would split the role. Um, again, it's, it's sort of just, just a guess, but uh, I also do think that you do have to look at some of 
Red Agency's management team um, and note that there is some some pretty good talent there. Next, how did Melbourne take to Christian O'Connell? Radio ratings were in this week, just in time for Zoe's first full day back in the office after that break we keep talking about. Uh, so we're starting now to get a picture of how the Kiss FM, Christian O'Connell experiment went in Melbourne, how uh, Macquarie Media Sports Network is working out. Um, Zoe, uh, highlights for you from this set of ratings? Overall, sort of quite predictable, to be perfectly honest. 2GB, 3AW, another survey tick off the list. So those are the talk stations in Sydney and Melbourne on in AM. In Sydney and Melbourne, yep. For Macquarie and Media. And they always win. And they, I think, something like 100 times. <laughs> more, I can't more, remember the number yes, we're up to. Correct. More yeah. or less. Over in Perth, Nova was actually lucky enough to win the survey, which does not happen very often. The last time they won was, I think, this time last year with a 14.7% share. And they were actually two ratings points up in both Breakfast and Drive, which was quite impressive for that market. Brisbane was also a success for Nova, which is quite predictable over there. They tend to have very high share, total share, breakfast share and drive share in Brisbane. And in Adelaide, Mix 102.3 extended its lead. So that's owned by ARN for those people that do not know that. And they extended their lead over rivals in that market. But obviously, to be expected, the attention was as per usual on ARN down in Melbourne. So that's KISS and Gold FM and in Sydney, SCA which has Today FM because, well, for obvious reasons, changes to line up, controversy from Today FM's side. What we saw in this survey, I think, from Christian, if we're talking about Christian O'Connell, so he is a former UK British radio star that actually started on June 4 with Gold FM in Melbourne. So this is his very first set of ratings. Very first, yeah. But would it cover, would the ratings we heard cover exactly his period? Or No, it was about a month of... So he started on June 4. I think the survey cutoff was June 22 or maybe June 30. Everyone's actually on break at the moment. Right, so it was a mixture of his predecessors well, or, he actually, or what was on hold before he came along. He actually didn't have any predecessors this year. He, he had a Music Breakfast, which surprisingly did well for the beginning of the first three surveys. You saw a, a growth for Gold FM. This survey, Breakfast went up 08 I think it's 0.8 or 0.7 points, but the total share is 7.8%, which is quite good. Obviously, when I spoke to ARN's national content director, Duncan Campbell, he was very quick to say, hey, it's way too early. We haven't even had a full survey period yet. So we'll actually need to probably look at the next two to three surveys to get an idea of how Christian's tracking in that market. The reason he also probably said that to me, and I'm sure you'll read about it when I get this piece over the line for tomorrow morning he he's also reluctant to do that because he's also got in breakfast in Melbourne another new radio show in Jace Hawkins and PJ Harding. Jace and PJ were actually a drive show in New Zealand, very successful, highly sought after actually. I believe there was SCA and ARN wanting them when they came to Australia. They haven't done as well as they probably – they probably and Duncan probably would have liked. Uh, I think this survey they finished with a – 4.9% share. So compared to others in market, not great. Duncan's argument is that the problem with that is that they've got a, a lack of familiarity. So he reckons it needs more time. He needs more marketing cut through. 
it's a competitive market. And speaking of not great, let's talk about the Macquarie Sports <laughs> Network. Tim, so mean. Uh, Look, I, 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 I drove in this morning and I made a point of listening to it. And actually, I would say this. So the two Macquarie Networks, so you've got the, the mainstream talk one, which includes 2GB in Sydney, 3AW in Melbourne. Regardless of what you think about the politics, it's some of the most polished and professional broadcasting. When I drive in, I might not listen to a single word I might not agree with a single word that Alan Jones said, but wow, he delivers it with authority and precision. Um, and he's just a machine and that's why he's still number one. But sister station, the Macquarie sports network is dreadful. Tim. It was some of the, honestly, the show this morning was so cataclysmically awful um there was one of the presenters was trying to trip up the other one because he was clearly trying to get away and bluff it on rugby they didn't really know the answer so he called him out and showed him up which is such a cardinal so when it's a sports show um they then sang along to a grease track without any great reason for a while um yeah look it it it, it wasn't great anyway um how, how did they do in the ratings zoe well, actually, Tim, you'd be pleasantly surprised to see that they actually grew in Brisbane, but we'll get to that in a second. In Sydney, total share for Macquarie Sports Radio, which replaced the Talking Lifestyle format for Macquarie Media, total share went from 1.9 last survey to 0.8 overall. Breakfast, which I believe you're talking about with John Stanley and Bo Ryan, so now people are getting hints as to who might have corrected who this morning. Well, let, let's remember it may, <laughs> they may have been still on the ratings break, so I don't think that was John Stanley's ah, voice. Ah, okay, well, there we go. Might have been a replacement. 2.5 in breakfast last survey to an 0.7, so that was a bit of a hit in Sydney. So they lost three quarters of their audience. They did lose three quarters. Now, I actually spoke to Michael Thompson this survey, the national executive producer at Macquarie Media, and Adam Lang this survey, so he's the CEO of Macquarie Media. They said that that was to be expected. They were expecting a drop-off just because of the difference between talking lifestyle and Macquarie sports the audiences aren't really going to cross over and they probably needed some to leave to re- and they're hoping that some will ultimately come in that they may not have attracted previously. In Melbourne, total share was down to 0.3 um, from 0.4 last survey, so 0.4 total share. 0.3 sounds, hang on, what, what we were calling the industry, not very good. <laughs> yes, but that, to be fair, to be fair to Macquarie Media, they haven't actually had much traction with Talking Lifestyle either. That share barely fluctuated and neither, it didn't do much in Brisbane either when Talking Lifestyle was there. In Brisbane, so Brisbane has the same breakfast show as uh, Sydney, um, it actually went up, so 0.5 to a 1% share. So they actually had an 0.5 ratings point increase in Brisbane and total share for Macquarie Sports Radio was up to 1.1 from 0.5 last survey. So it's actually had a bit of traction in Brisbane. I think it's still too soon to tell. It's a case of that was, I believe, their first full survey, but you're going to need a little bit of time to see how that levels out and – you know, from what I understand, Adam Lang has been wanting to do Macquarie Sports Ready for some time. He'll give it his best shot, 100%. And I think it's going to take a little bit to kind of – for the hosts to start working together. You know, John Stanley had been working um, with Gary Linnell for a really long time. So he's got a new partner in Bo Ryan. You know, it's just going to be a case of working together, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and 
hopefully it works. I mean, you want to back these shows when they start in, but sometimes new formats don't resonate with audiences. Kieran, what are your radio listening habits? Oh, I'm a fabulous dad, Tim. My radio habits consist of uh, ABC 630 in the morning uh, with a bit of uh, a bit of Frank Kelly thrown in because I have a massive girl crush on her. Love her interviewing style, um, and I love the obviously the talent that she gets on the program. Uh, we also are lucky enough to have a holiday home on the south coast, so we spend a lot of time driving down there on Friday evenings and driving back on Sundays. And once again, I'm an ABC six three zero news radio. Uh, just a bit of a news junkie to be news, politics, and business. Not great on uh, much to my 11-year-old's horror. Um, I don't listen to commercial radio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we're about out of time for this week. So, Kieran, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, Zoe and Abby, too. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Toodle pair. 